Well, let's get to it. Matthew chapter 24. We have much to cover. We gotta finish up this chapter, don't we? <laughs> things, are, things are moving along quite slowly. So it's time to get going. Moseying through Matthew. All right. Why don't you turn with me to Matthew 24? <laughs> We've been several weeks in this chapter. But if you've been with us, you can kind of see why. There's a lot to it. Jesus is giving some pretty incredible words about the end of the world. Uh, in chapter 23, we saw a radical sermon that Jesus gave indicting the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes, and then said, because of your unbelief and your rebellion, basically your temple's gonna be destroyed. And the disciples are like, huh? The temple, Herod's temple, are you kidding? And, and then they got a little curious, that must be, he must be talking about the end of the world. And so they asked the question that really kicks Matthew 24 into gear, tell us, when shall these things be? And what are gonna be the signs of your coming and the end of the world? So pretty, pretty big question. Um, the disciples, you know, you can kind of sort of guess, they're thinking, wow, this is gonna come soon. The end is near. And they were living sort of with that possibility. But um, Jesus then explains uh, what's gonna happen. But uh, you kind of realize, as we read it in retrospect, we realize he's talking about a massive world event, not just Jerusalem, not just the temple, but he's gonna talk about the end times uh, as it relates to the whole world and all of us, our future still. And that's why Matthew 24 is so important to really kind of get a grasp on. And we've covered, uh, taken some time, you know, the various views a couple Sundays back, we did pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, post-millennial, millennial We talked about all the different views of eschatology, that is the study of end times, and what various people believe. And again, it's an in-house debate uh, how you interpret uh, Bible prophecy. And it should be a friendly discussion with, within the church. Uh, often I find it's not uh, in these last days. It's become quite contentious actually, which is unfortunate. But be that as it may, you know, just as a verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book Bible teacher, um, I have just found the one that really fits the best if you're teaching the whole Bible um, which is what we do here at Athey Creek. And, and most through the Bible churches happen to be pre-trib, pre-millennial in their eschatology. And the reason why is because it's, it's what you can teach if you're teaching every verse of every chapter of every book of the Bible. Uh, it's the easiest one. If you're, if you're not teaching that, uh, teaching through the Bible would be very difficult and even and maybe a little embarrassing because there's entire sections that you have to kind of say, oh, this is not even meaning anything for today. It's all happened already. And it's a waste of time really to study those sections. That's why a lot of churches really don't cover one fourth of the Bible because one fourth of the Bible is Bible prophecy. So again, we here at Athey Creek teach a pre-trib, pre-millennial uh, rapture uh, of the church, pre-millennial and that the second coming of Christ happens at the beginning or at the, right at the end of the tribulation, right at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. That's what we believe. So um, just being real clear on that one. Now, if that's not confusing enough, in Matthew 24, um, where we are now in this chapter, it, it, even among pre-tribbers, there's disagreement on how to interpret Matthew 24. 
In times previous, I've just kind of taught generally my view uh, of what Matthew 24 is. And, um, and some would say, well, that's, that's fine, great, whatever. But um, tonight I'm gonna attempt to show you another side of the coin, and that is two different views that are within the Matthew 24 interpretation of pre-trib, pre-millennial. So my main point is, is nobody really agrees on everything, on, on end time stuff. And that shouldn't trouble you. Um, you know, I'd be more troubled if we didn't agree on the Trinity or the deity of Christ or the inspiration of scripture or what constitutes salvation. Like there's some really important topics that are essential doctrines of the Christian faith that we would be troubled if we had major disagreements on the essential doctrines. We don't, we don't want that. But we shouldn't be surprised about different views when it comes to end times and eschatology. And, and let me just give you one of the reasons why. When it comes to Bible prophecy, the Bible tells us that um, we will have a better understanding as we get closer to the end. Um, that's why the book of Daniel, Daniel was told to seal up the words until the time of the end. And Daniel went away astonished, not knowing anything about what he just wrote. Uh, he was confused. And he, poor Daniel, I don't think he ever really knew what was going on with his book. He just wrote down, okay, good luck with that, everybody. Here's my book. Um, but... Um, good news, uh, when we got the book of Revelation, that's the key that unlocks the book of Daniel, and Daniel is the key that unlocks the book of Revelation. It's such a cool thing, the way the Bible is this integrated message system that all works together. Um, so um, one of the things about eschatology or end time study is the closer we get to the end, we'll understand and we'll start to see the puzzle pieces fitting together. Um, and that's one of the things we shouldn't be surprised about which is an interesting thing when it comes to some of the arguments that we'll go over a little bit again tonight. But, um, but Matthew 24 presents issues for all the eschatological views. Everybody you know, debates Matthew 24, but even, um, I mentioned preterism. Remember preterism, preterism basically says that uh, Matthew 24 is already history. It's not prophecy, it's history. It's, it happened in AD 70. And I've already shown you a few things. Like look at, if you remember back in Matthew 24, verse 21, it says, for when there shall be, then Jesus said, there shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world um, to this time, no, nor ever shall be. If that's already happened, was AD 70 worse than any other time in history? Well, the answer is no, not even close. Um, we could talk about so many other times in history that were worse than AD 70. AD 70 was bad, I'll give it to, you know, the Jews in Jerusalem, uh, AD 70. A lot of Jews killed by the Romans. It was a horrible, horrible time. But as far as the worst time in the world and ever, ever has been or ever since, uh, that's not what happened in AD 70. That's what the preterists or those that take more of an allegorical or figurative view of Matthew uh, 24. That, that's one verse. Another verse, look at verse 29. Uh, Jesus said immediately after the tribulation of those days, which he talked about in verse uh, 21 and 22, after those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from the heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Um, what is that that we just read about, anybody? The second coming of Jesus. Did that happen in AD 70? No, not even close. 
Um, so it, it seems to me uh, a little short-sighted. And, and there's funny descriptions. People say, well, there was sort of a spiritual coming uh, of Jesus. And there's you know, ways of trying to get around that. But no, I, I think this is very clear that when you read Matthew 24, Jesus is asked, uh, answering the question the disciples asked. When's the end of the world? And he answers their question. So I, I'm very much of a literalist. I take the Bible literally whenever I can. Uh, the only time I don't take it literally is when the Bible says this is a you know, parable or it's something to be taken allegorically if it directly states that. But I've found that um, taking the Bible literally is quite rewarding. Uh, and that, that's the way we, we roll here at Athey Creek, as literal as we possibly can. And that's been really rewarding in the sense that we're watching Bible prophecy unfold in our lifetime around the world, literally. And, and those that are ignoring those prophecies, saying, oh, they've already happened, they're missing all the fun. They're missing all the stuff that the Bible said would happen in the end times. So uh, did Jesus come back yet? No, that hasn't happened yet. Um, so that's where we kind of pick up. We pick up right there in our text. Um, we, we just saw Jesus describe after the tribulation, so um, by the way, immediately it says after the tribulation. That's why I'm a premillennialist because Jesus is gonna come after the tribulation before the millennial kingdom. Are you guys with me still on all this? Okay, so that's stuff Jesus is just, just talking about. And we sort of pick up there in um, verse, uh, well, let, let, me, let me review just one other quick thing. Verse, verse uh, 31, he shall send his angels with great sound of trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And we quickly kind of tacked that on last week as we were running out of time. And I just wanted to make sure we understand. I told you there's three groups that are called the elect in the Bible. The first group is the elect, the Jews. Um, the second group that's also called elect are Christians. But you also might add a third group in there, the tribulation saints. And that's the people who get saved during the tribulation. I believe they're also called the elect. So who are these the Lord's gathering? Um, again, there's disagreement on this, but I believe we're mainly talking about um, at least the tribulation saints, which would include, and maybe even more importantly, the Jews of the tribulation. Remember after the fullness of the Gentiles, the rapture of the church, what happens after that according to Romans 11? Anybody? All Israel will be saved. Romans eleven twenty five. remember that? After the fullness of the Gentiles, then all of Israel will be saved. When's that gonna happen? Rapture of the church is the end of the Gentile age, really. Uh, the church age. And then the Jews are gonna be in that seven-year period called the tribulation, and it'll be a wake-up call to the nation. And uh, we talked about the abomination of desolation last week uh, and what that means. But the Jews will wake up and see that Jesus was the Messiah. The, the blinders that are on their eyes, according to Romans 11, will be lifted. And again, I, I gotta say, watch out for teaching that says the church has replaced Israel. The, the Jews are no longer God's chosen people. That's a huge erroneous teaching. And I believe it's presumptuous and even arrogant for us as Gentiles to say God's done with the Jews. Isn't it funny, the Lord says, don't be arrogant concerning Israel, for blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles. That's Romans, what is it, 11.25. So make sure, don't be arrogant, don't be ignorant, it says, both of those things. Not arrogant, not ignorant concerning the Jews. So the tribulation period is really to wake up a nation of Jews, also to pour out a, a God's wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. That's the tribulation period. So immediately after the tribulation, it says, then verse 29 tells us, 
that you know, the heavens are gonna give up her light, stars and fall from the heaven. That sounds pretty cataclysmic. I don't think that happened in AD 70 either. Um, and the tribes of the earth, who are the tribes of the earth? Are we talking about the Navajo or the Cherokee? No, the tribes of the earth specifically here, the Jews. I'll, I'll show you that later on as we keep going. Um, they're, gonna, they're gonna mourn. Why will they mourn? Um, there's a lot of reasons they'll mourn because um, one, they've rejected the Messiah and they're starting to get that now. Remember in Zechariah, where did you get those wounds? The Jews will say to Jesus and he'll say, I received these wounds in the house of my friends. And they'll be weeping when they realize that they've missed the Messiah. They're gonna mourn when they see him. They're gonna mourn for their rejection of him, but they will be saved. Um, and he'll come in the clouds with power and great glory. And then verse 31, he shall send his angels with great sound of trumpet. And what is he gonna do? Gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So what does this mean? I believe he's literally gonna be gathering particularly the Jews, the elect, the Jews, to Jerusalem, not, not to be raptured up to heaven as much as, as maybe to be gathered in Jerusalem. And we're gonna see later on that the Jews actually have a very specific role in the millennial kingdom, and they're gonna be serving in Jerusalem, the temple the, um, uh, and, the, and the, where Jesus rules and reigns from in Jerusalem. I believe he's gonna gather the Jews, particularly uh, his elect spoken of here, um, in that time of the millennial kingdom. So then Jesus goes into a, um, a little bit of a parable in verse 32. And that's where we pick up where we left off last week. Verse 32, now Jesus says, learn a parable of the fig tree when his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise, when you shall see all these things, know that it, is near even at the doors. Uh, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Now, the, the parable of the fig tree. Jesus says, learn the parable of the fig tree. Now, here's the thing. I wanna, this is where um, uh, you gotta really take careful consideration in Matthew 24. Who is Jesus talking to? And I've suggested um, one perspective, but I'm gonna give you both perspectives tonight and I'm probably gonna do confusion to everybody and I hope not. I'm gonna try my best not to confuse, but I do want to introduce something that a lot of people I really respect uh, and um, they, they even could be correct, uh, but I'm gonna show you a different view of the rest of this chapter, kind of two angles of it. Are you guys up for that? Uh, so you gotta kind of put on your thinking caps here. Uh, I think it's worth, and by the way, these are two views um, perspectives, I should say, on Matthew 24 that are both from the pre-tribulation. So it's even within pre-tribulation, uh, pre-millennial, even we have kind of disagreements uh, about what, how do you interpret Matthew 24? But this is, this is a very friendly disagreement I've noticed among pre-tribulationists. But how do you interpret um, you know, um, Matthew chapter 24. And one of the interpretations I've already suggested is that you break it into three sections. And I'm gonna remind you of that one. Matthew 24 um, is to be divided in three sections. Um, or the second view is um, Matthew 24 is only about the Jews and specifically about the tribulation period. Now this changes a little bit the way you would look at Matthew 24, depending on which one of these views you hold. 
Traditionally, I have taught that Matthew 24 is to be divided into three sections, and I'll show you why, and why a lot of people still stand on that and believe that, and then I'll show you how you might take Matthew 24 as Jesus just talking to Jews, specifically about only the tribulation period. So let's, let's first talk about the three-section one, okay? The one I mentioned a few weeks ago, three sections of the Olivet Discourse. The first section could be about the end times as it relates to all the nations. And that's where we take verses four through 14, as we did, and look at it as the things that are gonna build up before the tribulation period kicks into gear. And some of the language there that we read suggests that. You know, when Jesus said, all these things are the beginning of sorrows, uh, birth pains. In other words, you know, some of us believe that maybe these wars and rumors of wars Jesus talked about, um, uh, some of the, 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 the you know, problems that he lists there. He says, all these things are gonna happen, but the end is not yet. In other words, you might say, these are the things that are gonna build up to the end, which includes the rapture of the church, the tribulation period. Here's a question, food for thought. Is the rapture talked about in Matthew 24? Or does Jesus ignore that? Now, before you answer that, because some of you might say, yes, for sure. Um, but this is one you might be careful on because uh, don't be so quick on that one. But all that to say, um, minimally, if you've been with us so far, Jesus ignored the rapture so far. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, if you see Matthew 24, verses one through uh, 21, Jesus talks about, okay, all these things are gonna build up to the end, and then there's gonna be um, the abomination of desolation. We went right into the tribulation period, in fact, the middle of the tribulation. And he didn't say, and my church will be raptured. Um, why, why is that? Well, that's a great question. So, um, so we'll tuck that away for a second, but it's possible Jesus just leaving that out. Some people argue that Jesus hasn't introduced the rapture of the church yet to anyone. Um, you, you could say he did in John uh, 14 when he said, you know, in my father's house are many mansions, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That, a lot of people believe that was Jesus's first real mention of the rapture. I will come and receive you unto myself. It's not a coming but it's where we meet him in the air, like 1 Thessalonians chapter four talks about. So kind of interesting questions. Matthew 24 is a little tricky because it sort of leaves that out, it seems. But if you take the first chunk, end times it relates to the nations. All the nations of the world will see wars and rumors of war and kingdom rising against kingdom and nation against nation, earthquakes in diverse places. Um, these are the beginning of sorrows and the, the love of many shall grow cold and people will betray one another. And, and you have to admit, it seems like we're living in those days as it turns out. No matter what your view is on what I'm about to present, I still think that we're seeing days that are building up to this. If it's just for the Jews and the tribulation or if it's our days, we're seeing the, the temperature rise in all of these things, which minimally we would say, wow, things are heating up to get to that point that Jesus is talking about. Does that make sense? Well, uh, the first section is that. Then the second is the end times as relates to Israel. And, and that's because we believe in a pre-trib rapture. And, and by the way, I would never use Matthew 24 to defend pre-trib rapture. It's not a great defense of that, but it's not a great defense of, of post-trib either, if you ask me, or uh, amillennial views or any, it, it's, it's not a great defense of any of those positions, but Jesus does talk about all of the things that are gonna happen, uh, um, it seems. 
But, um, but in verses 15 through 36, it definitely starts to go to the Jews because he talks about when you therefore shall see the abominated desolation spoken of by Daniel. If you remember, we, we saw that in Daniel chapter nine, the abomination of desolation, Daniel said, Daniel, this is upon who? Your people and upon your holy city, Jerusalem. Daniel was very specific on this prophecy. He didn't say it was for the Gentile church or the Gentile, Gentile age. Um, so minimally, verses 15 through 36, we believe is talking to the Jews specifically. Um, and that's why you may not see a mentioning of the rapture of the church yet or ever in chapter uh, 24. I know I'm being kind of cryptic here, but you'll see as we read on and stuff like that. Then the third section, uh, some, some have suggested then verses 37 uh, verses through, through uh, 42 is the end times as it relates to the church. And then you say, well, what about the last section? Uh, then you would say that's just a reminder to all of humanity of what we should be doing in light of watching, being ready, being sober. Jesus gives us a word on that. So this is sort of the three section of the Olivet Discourse. End times it relates to the nations, then it relates to Israel, then as it relates to the church, where some would say we see the rapture of the church in verses 37 through 42. Now, before you get too upset about the order of Matthew 24, one of the arguments of why the rapture of the church may not need to be seen here in order is because of the way the Jewish reasoning goes. And I've done whole teachings on the Jewish mind and how there's a more of a circular way of logic where it starts with a topic and then it kind of seemingly meanders in their writings and in their teachings, but it ultimately comes back down to the main point and then you see kind of a nice package deal. We as Americans, Westerners, we think of things very linear uh, when we speak or when we teach. Have you guys heard about this? I'm seeing blank, blank stares. Uh, I did a whole uh, prophecy update on this whole line of thinking. But some suggest that Jesus was being very Jewish here in the way that he works through the end and the second coming and, and how he works through that, which is kind of an interesting thing to, to add to our discussion. Now, that's the first view um, and the one I've taught since I was young. Um, and, and I still would lean perhaps that direction, but I do have to say there's another view, and we'll just call it this, the Matthew 24, and just simply put, for, just for the Jews only. Um, as, and as it turns out, um, you know, it's, it's about the Jews during specifically the tribulation period, um, the, the week of the 70th week of Daniel. Some would say Matthew 24 is really about the 70th week, 70th week of Daniel, if you remember our study on a couple Sundays ago. Well, then that starts to beg the question, what is this parable of the fig tree? And I'm gonna show you the two different views, the two angles. Um, if you believe that now we're still talking about Israel, um, then we see uh, the fig tree being a type or a symbol of Israel. I remember being challenged on this when I was on a tour with our group in Israel. And, uh, our Jewish tour guide said, Israel has never been, uh, you know, the symbol of the fig tree has never been used uh, for the people of Israel. And I remember him making that statement. I thought, wait a minute, Matthew 24. And he said, well, um, that's people assuming that it's Israel, but he says, I don't think it is. And, and this is a guy who knows the Hebrew Bible. And the truth is, um, as it turns out, um, you know, the idea of Israel, um, you know, sort of uh, being uh, the fig tree, there are some passages uh, that we could talk about. I might even list them a little bit later um, that could refer to Israel as the fig tree and, and Jesus even cursing the fig tree that was unfruitful. Like there's some interesting links already to that. 
But the way we've traditionally kind of looked at this is, um, is actually that the parable of the fig tree is um, Israel. And, and what's the prophecy? See, here's the question. Is this a prophecy about the future Israel or is this just simply a parable? And it is called a parable, but some would say, and, and this comes from kind of, remember the late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey? Uh, he's the one who really got this known out there. The idea of the parable of the victory is talking about Israel. And, and it says, basically, when the branch is yet tendered, puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So likewise, you, uh, when you shall see all these things, know that it, um, and mark the word it there because it should say he. If you have a King Jimmy, it says it, but your margin probably says he, because that's probably a better translation. Your newer translations, most of them say he. He is near even at the doors. Um, and then it says, verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. So what does that mean? If you take this Israel as the fig tree, it's basically saying the generation that sees the, the fig tree blossom is gonna be the last generation. And that's really possible. Um, have we, as, uh, and I'm gonna use this term lightly, as a generation sees, seen Israel blossom? What is a generation in the Bible? This is where it, it gets interesting because I remember um, back in the old days, um, you know, I remember when, uh, um, you know, Hal Lindsey was first talking about this, um, you know, about the fig tree blossoming. And we all thought, wow, this is great. When did Israel blossom? May 14th, 1948. They became a nation again. And, and by the way, no matter what your view is on Bible prophecy, you have to admit what an amazing fulfilling of Bible prophecy when Israel became a nation again. Um, and I think that's when a lot of people, the amillennialists should have just said, wow, literal fulfillment of Bible prophecy, time to change our notes. Um, because Israel, you know, Ezekiel 36, 37, uh, so many passages were fulfilled when Israel became a nation again. And so, you know, Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth basically said, well, this, this is the, the fig tree blossoming. So what's a generation? Well, some people said it was 20 years. So some people believe in the 1960s, uh, the rapture of the church was gonna happen at some point. Uh, but no, it's not 20 years, it's 40 years. A, a, a generation is 40 years. And there's, there's all kinds of biblical, in fact, of all the arguments for a generation in the Bible, 40 years is probably um, the best defense of what a generation is. Uh, the 40 years of people wandering in the wilderness so that that one generation could die off. And, and so some said it's 40 years. So people, you know, did the math. Let's see, 1948, uh, carry the one, 1988. You guys remember, there was a lot of people said 1988 is when the Lord's coming back. In fact, a guy wrote a book. Uh, it was a bestseller, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1988. It was a bestseller right up until 1989. <laughs> uh, that's why I think it's always bad to start saying, for sure, you know, this is when it's, I, I, I always want to really recommend that we as uh, students of Bible prophecy be really careful about being emphatic about times, even the times and seasons for that matter. You know, you don't know the day or hour for sure. But I would say, let's not even be dogmatic when it comes to the times and seasons. We can watch and we're supposed to watch the times and seasons, but I would be really careful with this sort of notion of the times and the seasons. Um, so this idea of the fig tree, you can jot this down, but basically uh, Jeremiah 24 talks about the rotten figs. Some would say Israel's the fig tree there. Hosea 9.10 compares Israel to a fig tree. Judges 9 verses 10-11 refers to Israel as a fig tree. Matthew 21.19 uh, refers to uh, Israel as a fig tree. 
Now, um, now let's pause for a moment and go back to the second argument. What, what is the group of people that say this is not uh, um, speaking of um, you know, the, the Israel, the fig tree? The, kind of the second view is um, it's just a parable talking about you can know the fig tree uh, and its season. So the Jews will know the seasons during the tribulation period of the days they live. So this is the argument. You know, what, what lesson is to be learned from the parable of the fig tree? They, there's a whole group of people, uh, J. Vernon McGee uh, and others. Um, no, Jay, Jay believes that it's, a, uh, it's Israel. But um, Thomas Ice, if you know Thomas Ice and some others, uh, Dr. David Hawking, if you know Dr. Hawking's uh, teaching on this, he believes that uh, we're not talking about um, Israel here as much as it's a uh, parable. The lesson is that uh, when the fig tree reaches a certain stage of its seasonal cycle, um, you know, in this case, putting on the leaves, as it says here, uh, then one knows that we've reached a certain time of the year. Uh, in this case, like summer is near. So the parable is a lesson of comparisons, they would say, moving the known order to explain the unknown order. Um, uh, so uh, the leaves before summer would refer to the events of the tribulation, uh, according to this view, um, basically uh, in, uh, of, in, of Jesus talking about the tribulation, verses 15 through 31, and then goes into the fig tree about the timing. So uh, when one sees the events that Jesus talks about, the return of Christ, uh, know that the, uh, you're, or when you see these things, know that the return of Christ is right at the door, is the idea. Um, so, um, you know, the, they're saying that, you know, those that would say this is not talking about Israel, it's just talking about the Jews seeing that the time is full, it's ripe for the second coming of Christ. Um, now, um, one of the reasons people, some people say we have to be careful about this is if you take the view that the, this is all about the Jews, you can kind of stick with the order of this chapter. Um, and uh, you don't have to freak out about the order, uh, I'll, I'll just say. So basically it's saying, you know, the Jews are gonna go through the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, then the second coming of Christ. And then he's, Jesus is saying, see, this is what's gonna happen uh, uh, in the tribulation period. That's the parable of the victory. If you take it more as it's talking to, you know, us, and our and the church, we take it and say, well, we need to look for what's happening with Israel as the timepiece to see what's going on in the world. Well, Brad, this really shakes me up in my in my thinking. Here's why it shouldn't. Because none of what I just told you should change any of our views about what we're doing. Um, there's other passages in the Bible that tells us and teaches us that Israel is God's timepiece as it relates to end times. Whether it's the fig tree or not of Matthew 24, it doesn't change. Um, we can show you all kinds of Old Testament passages that point to Israel's God's prophetic timepiece. Uh, that's not even hard. Um, and then you say, well, Brett, what if this is all just for the Jews? Then we're not even supposed to be watching and waiting. Well, there's other passages that tell us we're to be watching and waiting, especially the church of Jesus Christ. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, we covered a few weeks ago. And over and over it says, watch, be sober, be vigilant, and not to be taken like the thief in the night. The same message goes to the Christian church um, as it goes to the Jews, if you take Matthew 24 as only for the Jews. Do you guys, does that make sense? Uh, it doesn't change what we think. It just changes a little bit the way you interpret. Um, by the way, this idea of, um, of uh, the, the, um, the generation and what, what have you, uh, some say, 
that a generation is actually 100 years. Genesis chapter 15, you can jot this down in your notes, verses 13 through 16, it says, and he said unto Abram, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in, the, in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them 400 years and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they uh, come out with great substance and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. This verse does something interesting with the generation. Uh, it says that they'd be afflicted for 400 years, which they were, but in the fourth generation, they shall not come hither again. Some use this as a, as a text to define a generation as 100 years. But are you suggesting that Israel was a nation in 1948, so does that mean the, the end is, is gonna be in you know, 2048? I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm just saying it could be somewhere between now and then, uh, and something for us to look for. Here's where the generational thing, I think, has gotten a little crazy. And maybe you know, some of the Hal Lindsey people, you know, we, we got really excited about what he, what he told us about this, but I do think people got a little hung up on the, on the, on the generation, because when it was 40 years, 1988 passed and came and went. And I think it, a lot of people lost some credibility when nothing happened after the 40 years. Then some people said, no, it's a 70 year generation. And then others are now saying, no, it's a 100 year generation. Um, all I know is this, um, uh, either way, nobody knows the day or the hour, but we are sp still supposed to be watching and waiting. And we're supposed to be looking for the signs of the times. And one of the things I told you is, you know, the end time study does change. Our thinking does uh, adjust as we get further down the road. And some people are starting to say, maybe this fig tree, uh, Matthew 24, is not necessarily Israel, but it's talking to the Jews during the tribulation. Um, and it has to do with people sort of losing faith in this idea that, the, that Israel is the fig tree. Um, so you can kind of pray about that and maybe even do your own Bible study about is Israel the fig tree or is the fig tree just the parable, an idiom of knowing the times and seasons for the Jews that'll be living in the tribulation period. And those that say that, by the way, they say, and the generation will not pass. Why? Because it's gonna be only seven years. The tribulation is gonna be seven years, so that generation won't pass until they see the coming of the Son of Man. Does that make sense? There's some that really argue that and I wouldn't really uh, fight too much with them on that one. I think it's kind of an interesting take on this. Um, well, all that to say, Israel is still, I wanna emphasize, Israel is God's timepiece still. Do you guys understand that? That's still important. And the reason I wanna say that is take, take away Matthew 24, it doesn't change any of that. Um, you know, there's so many prophecies about the last days in Israel in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. You know, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14 talks about, um, you know, um, how Israel, they'll seek to divide Israel in half uh, in the last days. And uh, it'll be, that'll be a mark of the last days. What are they trying to do right now? Divide Jerusalem in half. And Jerusalem, is, you know, to, to go back to the 1967 borders that our president wants to go back to, um, that's to divide, that's chopping Jerusalem in half. Um, and we keep trying to, you know, argue for a, a, you know, a Palestinian state, which means chopping Jerusalem in half. Uh, it's, it's an interesting uh, political de debate right now. But, you know, one thing you might track and note is every president that tries to push for, 
you know, dividing Jerusalem in half or sort of making the, they want to be the broker of the, of the peace deal between the Arabs and Israelis. That always cracks me up because there will be a peace treaty between the Arabs and Israeli and it'll seem to work. And guess who's going to broker that? The Antichrist. So I remember people were like, Trump's gonna be the one to broker the deal between the Arabs and Israel. Well, then he's the Antichrist. If he, if he is, Brett, are you saying that Trump's the Antichrist? I didn't say that. I'm just saying, whoever does that. But check this out. Like all the presidents have made that their goal, their legacy. Uh, we will make the Arabs and Israelis and all these peace accords, whether it's Oslo or throughout the, all the different presidents are always, and there's always this presidential picture of the, the president holding their hands out, joining the two factions uh, together and holy matrimony, almost like they're performing a wedding. Uh, and it's ridiculous. Uh, every time a president does that, um, it's, it's, it's a total joke. Why? Because the Bible says they're gonna keep trying to divide Jerusalem and, and the Arab-Israeli conflict sure seems to me like the, the situation that's gonna be uh, happening around that. Well, all that to say, um, you say, okay, Brett, got it. Uh, let's, let's go on. Okay, we'll keep going, but I'm gonna keep showing you the two different sides if, if we're not being too confusing. Um, so, um, then he goes on and, and, verse, uh, and uh, verse 36. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, this, this whole thing of not knowing the day or the hour, you could say, well, is that us for the rapture? Or is it uh, the Jews for the second coming of Christ? And the answer is yes. We don't know the day or the hour of the rapture of the church. Imminence is one of the key parts of the rapture is we don't know when it's gonna happen. Uh, but same is true for the second coming of Christ. It's gonna be, um, uh, interestingly, not really known. Now, if you're living in the tribulation period, you will know the times and seasons from one major event, and that is the abomination of desolation. We know that the tribulation period will end uh, 1,290 days, you know, right after the abomination of desolation, and then sometime after that, the second coming of Christ. Um, there's a variable in there that, that we don't know, but um, I believe it's gonna be very short because it says immediately after the tribulation, what's immediately? I don't know, but it's gonna be shortly thereafter. So they will know the general vicinity of when the second coming is gonna happen uh, as it turns out. Um, with that said, um, this idea of, um, you know, um, you know, Israel, um, you know, being in the tribulation period, that's what it's saying. You know, basically he says, um, you know, we, you won't know when that's going to happen. And then on verse 37, we picked that up on Sunday. It says, um, but as the days of Noah were, so also shall the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. There's so many things about this, you know, that we touched on on Sunday, but, you know, God shut the door. It was a, took them all by surprise. And the days of Noah are a sign of the times to come. And, and that's what we looked at, um, you know, uh, on Sunday. But um, there, there's some interesting words here that you should note, verse 39. And it says, they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, the Greek word for took is arrow, um, which means to take sort of uh, with aggressiveness or even violently. But then it says in verse 40, then, or maybe better translated the word when, some of your newer translations do that, when shall two be in the field, 
The one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. So which, what's going on here? Is this the rapture of the church? Well, if you had the song back in the 70s, uh, I wish we'd all been ready. You know, life was filled with guns and war and everyone got trampled on. Remember that song? Anybody old enough to remember that? Um, yeah, Larry Norman, that's right. Um, a little creepy. I was a little kid when I heard it. I was like, life was filled with guns and I was like, oh, this is horrible. Um, but uh, since then, I, I do like that song uh, because it talks about the rapture of the church. But that song assumes this is talking about the rapture. Um, and as it turns out, um, many people say this is not talking about the rapture. It's talking about something else. And uh, again, people that I really respect, uh, this is one where Jay Vernon McGee says this is not the rapture of the church. He believes in the rapture of the church, just this isn't talking about that. Uh, Thomas Ice, uh, there's a lot of scholarly people that say this is talking about the taking away in judgment. Huh? Well, first of all, think with me for a second, because um, if this is the rapture of the church, it's a weird place to put this in the chapter, you have to admit. Shouldn't the rapture of the church been somewhere earlier, like in the earlier part of the chapter, like before the tribulation? See, Brett, that's why I'm a post-tribulation. Well, there's all kinds of problems with post-tribulation view as it relates to Matthew 24. I'm not even gonna go into that tonight, but I can understand why people might jump to that conclusion. But if you look at the language here, it's, it, it's quite a bit different. In fact, the word um, for taken in verse 40 is not arrow like in verse 39, <clears throat> but the word is ter- uh, paralambano, which is a word that means to receive or to take up. And you might say, well, Brett, that sounds like the rapture. But that word can be used both negatively and positively. And so a lot of scholars believe uh, you know, that this is actually um, gonna happen during the tribulation period at the end, when the Lord's gonna take up those that are to be uh, judged in judgment, they would argue that. Well, Brett, this sounds like the rapture to me. Well, me too. That's why I've taught it for all these years that this is the rapture of the church and it's just out of order in Matthew 24. Now, again, some people get freaked out. Well, the order of Matthew 24 is a big deal. Um, I would say the book of Revelation, the order of the book of Revelation is a big deal. And when you read the book of Revelation, I believe the order of that book falls in perfect line with the order of events to be a premillennial, pre-trib rapture uh, view. Uh, You don't have to change anything in the whole book of Revelation as far as the order goes. Um, Matthew 24 is arguably uh, not that uh, order, um, and it sort of jumbles around. now, I know, by the way, some, some of you are already still stuck on, um, there is no such thing as rapture of the church. I've already kind of defended that in previous studies. But one of the things I wanna say, just to help you equip you, is a lot of the um, amillennial uh, preterists, those, those different views, they'll say, the rapture of the church is a brand new um, you know, theology. Uh, it's only been around for 150 years. Darby and Schofield were the ones who pushed that. Um, and they make this big case that you know it's this new uh, end times uh, eschatology. The first thing I would say to that is um, uh, I don't agree with you, but even if I gave that argument to you, so what? Um, you know what else is new theology that we can throw a little grenade in the mix of that? Fairly new, only 500 years old is Calvinism. 
Are you going to throw, which is funny because I like, you know, the hardcore Calvinists, they're the ones that are saying rapture's new. Well, so is Calvinism. Um, like there's, there's things that we've discovered and people have talked about that weren't there before. Calvinism, the word Calvinism's not in the Bible. Uh, that's one of their arguments. The word rapture's not in the Bible, neither is Calvinism. The word Bible's not in the word Bible. Uh, like, like um, but, but as it turns out, um, I, I, I would argue there's actually several sources that actually talked about the rapture. There's a false narrative out there. I'm just gonna be clear on this. First of all, I don't believe that Darby was the first one who believed in the rapture. I think Jesus was. And then the apostle Paul, I think he also believed in the rapture. Read First Thessalonians chapter four. He talked about being caught up in the air. Harpazo, Greek word, Latin, Vulgate translation uh, was uh, the where we get our word rapture. So Paul taught it, Jesus talked about it. But um, you can even go back and find some extra biblical literature that talks about the rapture of the church. Um, archaeologically, they dug up in the year 2000, um, um, interesting, uh, the apocalypse of Pseudo-Ephraim, uh, which again, it's extra biblical literature, so you, you can't say it's inspired. But the, the argument of the amillennialists is, you know, nobody talked about the rapture before Darby, it's just not true. Uh, let me quote the pseudo Ephraim in three, the year 374. That's going back a ways. Um, he says this, all the saints and the elect of God are gathered together before the tribulation, which is to come and are taken to the Lord in order that they may not see at any time the confusion which overwhelms the world because of the sins. That, that, that's a guy in 374. So these people say the rapture's a new, nobody, some girl on mushrooms, like there's this narrative that is, that's out there, it's ridiculous. Um, this, that uh, they say the, the rapture is just a Schofield invention or a Darby invention. There's other ancient writings, the apocalypse of Elijah, again, not canon of scripture, but nonetheless, ancient literature that refers to um, what I would see as a pre-trib rapture of the church. The, also the history of Brother uh, Dolin, uh, Dol, Doncino. Uh, you can look these up if you want to. But these guys all mentioned a pre-trib rapture long before these people say, well, the pre-trib is a new invention. Here's why I don't really wanna argue the point that much. Because again, the end times theology is something we'll learn more and more about the further down the road we get. I think even I would have been an amillennialist 500 years ago. And the reason why Israel wasn't literally a nation and I would have had to say, wow, all this stuff must be figurative and it must, the church must have replaced the Jews because the Jews have been scattered for 1500 years. And so, uh, you know, and they crucified Jesus. Like that's where all that all millennialism came from is where they, and, and, the, and the figurative preterist kind of view, it, they just said, oh, it's all figurative. But once Israel became a nation in 1948, um, that shouldn't have been a new teaching. We should call that a solidified teaching. Once Israel became a nation in 1948, that should have sealed the deal for people to say pre-trib, pre-millennial rapture. Um, and so um, I wouldn't even argue that much about its newness. I, the reason that's tricky is because I would, I would make that argument every other doctrine in the Bible. There's no other doctrine that's, if it's new, it's not true. And I would stick to that uh, to the day I die. Um, people that come up with new doctrine is usually what we call heresy. But when it comes to the end times, the Bible says of itself that you will figure this out the closer you are to the time of the end. So while yes, pre-trib rapture has gained steam in the last you know, couple hundred years, um, that doesn't nullify it uh, or make it untrue.
So that's kind of an important part of this whole, this whole thing. So um, is this talking about the rapture? It could be. It's just that it kind of sits outside of the order of Matthew 24. Um, but if you take it, those three sections, uh, first to the nations, then to the Jews, and then the, um, you know, verses uh, 30, 37 and onward, talking to the church of Jesus Christ, that's how uh, those would say, well, this is the rapture, and those are people being taken. Um, I like, there was a while there, people argued, notice that some will be taken in bed, uh, other passages of the Bible, they'll be out in a field. What is it, day or night? And they used this argument that um, basically uh, Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. Well, you know, what about time zones and the other side of the earth? Uh, the rapture is gonna be at one time. So some people are gonna be asleep, some people will be in the middle of the day. Um, don't let that um, throw you, by the way. Um, so all that to say, um, so what you say, Brad, so what, what, do, what do they say it is? Well, it's either the rapture of the church, if you believe the three divisions of Matthew 24, or if you believe it's to the Jews and about the tribulation period, um, J. Vernon and others argue that this is um, those that were re rejecting the Lord who will be taken for judgment. That's the idea there, taken for judgment. Um, if you think that's a horrible view, it's actually not. It's, it's actually, there, you can look that up and it's fairly well defended, I have to say. Um, and I admire the guys that have that view. It's just something for you to pray about and think about. But where we start to agree once again, uh, no matter what, uh, pre-tribber, is what, what the point of this is, verse 42, watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. That's true, both coming for his church in the rapture, uh, which is a more of a meeting, or you're talking about the second coming. Either way, we don't know the hour um, that the Lord comes, but then he gives us an illustration, verse 43. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what, uh, in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have been, suffered his house to be broken up. Now there's an unfortunate word, old English word here, goodman. Um, that doesn't mean that was a good man, does it? The goodman of the house is the master of the house or the owner of the house. That's all that word means in King James. The good man in this case is actually the bad man, um, honestly. Um, and the bad man is the one who's gonna be caught as when the Lord comes um, unaware, not watching, not waiting. Um, so the idea is that he's the head of the house. And some even argue that this is Satan himself being referred to. Um, if you'll look in your uh, reference or if you have commentaries on your, on your Bible notes there, a lot of people will attribute that to Satan himself. So know this, that, you know, if you knew the thief was coming, you'd be ready for him. Um, and remember what we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter four and five, that you, you children are not gonna be overtaken as a thief. Why? Because it said there, you are children of the light, children of the day. It's not gonna overtake you as a thief. So the idea of the thief in the night is often referring to the negative side of those who are not watching and not waiting, and they're actually sort of partying down. Would you keep your finger here and go with me to 1 John, toward the back of your Bible? 1 John chapter three. In 1 John chapter three, of course, John was writing these books about love But he, he says something here that I think is important for the Christian, especially if it's living in the last days. First John chapter three, verse one. It says, behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. 
Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. What a beautiful thing that is. We're beloved and we're called the sons of God. And that's why the world doesn't get us or know us because they didn't know Jesus either. Don't be shocked when you're not hip with the world or fitting in with the world or if you feel like an outcast with the world, that's okay because we're the sons of God. And being the sons of God or daughters of God, uh, as it turns out, um, that's because the Lord loved us and has adopted us. But he says there in verse two, beloved, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Don't you look forward to that day? When he shall appear. Which one is it, the rapture of the church or the second coming of Christ? The answer? Yes. When he shall appear, we shall be like him. And then notice what it says in verse three. It says, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. The person is hoping in his appearance. Um, remember we read last Sunday, you know, in Second Peter, when Peter said that we should be looking for and hastening unto. Remember that language we read on, on Sunday? That means hoping that it comes quickly. Why would we wanna do that? Because when we see him, we will be like him. That's gonna be a good day when you lose yourself and you become more like the Lord. In fact, you'll become like him. What does that mean? Uh, that means I'm gonna lose Brett and become more like Jesus in a radical, miraculous way. Whew, I look forward to that day. Um, and that's what we look forward to. So he who has this hope, it says here, in himself, pure, purifies himself even as he is pure. So to have the hope of the coming of Christ is to purify you. The idea is when you and I live with that expectation of the rapture of the church or the second coming of Christ, um, there's a purifying effect that takes place in your life where you're not gonna just go down and party down. And, and that's what Jesus is referring you know, here. Um, watch therefore, don't you know, Jesus says that the, you, know, you don't know the hour when the Lord doth come. Don't be like the good man of the house who doesn't really anticipate the thief in the night uh, where he's gonna be taken as, by surprise and his house is gonna suffer and be broken up. Don't be that way. We're children of the light, children of the day. First Thessalonians 5 tells us that's the way we're supposed to live. So no matter what your view is, by the way, on Matthew 24, I think that's the main thing. We should all be watching, sober, vigilant. But then the next thing we should also be doing is serving. And that's where we pick up further um, in, in verse uh, 44. It says in verse 44, therefore be ye also ready. For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. <laughs> How many times does he have to say this? Uh, because so many goofballs are saying, well, this is the hour when the Lord's coming back. And man, how many people have said that over the years? Uh, Jesus made this as clear as you can get. You won't know the day, you won't know the hour. And even it says this, at an hour you think not. That's when he's gonna come. How many of you by show of hands think that the Lord's gonna come back in five minutes? <laughs> he could come back right then. Because none of you said, yeah, I mean, like <laughs> that's an hour you all thought not. So it could be five minutes, right? Um, that's the point. Uh, it's gonna be like a, a, in a twinkling of an eye, the Bible says. Um, science tells us how fast it is when your eye just blinks by a reaction, like a, a loud noise or whatever. You're, it's it's uh, 0.1 second. Uh, 0.1 second is how fast your eye blinks. That's how fast it's gonna happen. In a twinkling of an eye, we're gonna be taken up to be with them. So uh, that's gonna happen at a time when, we're, when, when, when the world least expect it, expects it at an hour when you think not. So when you hear people say, it's June 14th, you know, 
2024. You can say, eh, wrong, because you don't know it. It's an hour when you think not. But then he talks about service, verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant um, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Um, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find uh, find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. Now, in verses 44 um, through 47, we kind of have that reminder at an hour and you think not, but be ready by, by serving. And how are we to be serving? Well, the servant here, uh, notice what it says here. Um, the faithful and wise servant, when the Lord made him ruler over the household, um, I, I think that's an interesting thing because could he be talking to pastors? Um, servants over his households. That's what a pastor is supposed to be as a minister, as a servant is the word minister. We've made the word minister. I'm a minister of the gospel. Like it's some lofty title, but it actually means slave, servant. But he says, you know, the, who, who the Lord has made minister over his household. And what is he supposed to be doing? To give meat in his due season. This is one of my life verses. Uh, I like this. Question, quiz time. What is the, the, the idea of meat often compared to in the scriptures? Anybody? The word of God um, and strong doctrine of the word. Remember in Hebrews, it talks about, you know, the author of Hebrews marbles and says, what? You're still giving milk, which is good. You know, milk is good for the baby that needs milk. And that's the gospel message. And, you know, just the basic gospel message. But he says, I marvel. You guys should be moved on from the milk to the meat. Uh, but you're still drinking milk. You're nursing babies when you should have been having ribeye steaks. That's what the author of Hebrews said in a paraphrase. <laughs> ribeye steaks, that part. But, um, but all that to say, you say, Brett, what's the point? Well, see, here's the thing. I believe the faithful servants are gonna be giving out the meat in the days before Christ comes. And that's, that's where the word of God is being taught. The word of God is being believed and exalted as not the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And I think some of the people that are gonna be taken like a thief in the night are gonna be the people that are not, not really teaching the word. They're not doing the work of giving out the meat. A lot of the churches that are giving out cotton candy for their truth, they've gotta watch out because if they're not giving the meat of the word and, and sort of tiptoeing through the difficult topics and not talking about controversial issues. I, I fear that they're gonna be taken as by surprise. The meat of the word is to, to dive in and, and do some heavy lifting when it comes to the scriptures. Um, so that, this is the faithful servant. What's the faithful servant doing? He's giving out the meat, it says here, to give them meat in due season. And, and blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. And then because of that, he's gonna make him ruler of all his goods. Um, But now we talk about the evil, wicked servant, verse 48. But if if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming. Do you remember what we talked about from 2 Peter where the person says, ah, where is the promise of his coming? Like this is the same person we're talking about here, scoffed in the last days, scoffers. Where's the promise of it? Things have always been the same as they always have been. And Peter says, not like, you mean the days of Noah? When the flood happened, remember that? On Sunday, we looked at that. Jesus is talking about the same exact thing here. So he says, but if that evil servant says in his heart, my Lord delays his coming and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken, 
The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him and in an hour that he is not aware of and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm not 100% sure who this group of people would be, um, but wouldn't you agree you don't wanna be them? Because they end up in a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It sounds kind of like hell to me. Uh, if you know the Bible, when it talks about hell, and who are these? These are people that instead of looking for and watching and being, you know, that, you know, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You know, remember we talked about 1 John 3. He who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. But the wicked servant says, yeah, whatever, the Lord's not coming now. So I'm gonna go party down. I'm gonna go do my sinful stuff and I'm gonna engage in sinful deeds because the Lord's not coming. And by the way, there, there are a lot of end times views that basically say the Lord can't come back. If you're, if you're an, um, you know, like, remember we talked about the post-millennial view, how things have to get better and better before the second coming of the Lord could come. Um, you, you know the Lord's not coming back yet because things are getting worse and worse right now. There's a lot of work to do before you can usher in the kingdom if that's your view. Um, even some of the other views, you know, um, I would even say post-trip view. You have to kind of say, well, the Lord can't come back uh, we have to look for the Antichrist, the building of the temple in Jerusalem. We have to see the tribulation period. Um, and we say the Lord delays his coming. The only view that says we have eminence, the doctrine of eminence, is the, the pre-trib, pre-millennial view that the rapture could happen at any moment. We're the ones who are not gonna be taken by surprise because we're, we're supposed to live our lives even as they did in those days. We're supposed to live our lives as if the rapture of the church could happen at any minute. And there's a purifying effect that happens if you believe that that can happen. Uh, Matthew chapter 24 is uh, a powerful passage that Jesus answers the disciples' radical question. And um, the point is to not be the wicked servants. And yeah, whatever, uh, we're gonna go punch our, our brothers in the face and drink and eat, drink and be merry, you know, that, none of that. But instead, we're watching, waiting, busy serving, giving out the meat um, which is the word of God, that's what we should all be busy doing, busy about the kingdom. I love Daniel, by the way, because I told you Daniel didn't even know what he was writing about most of the time. He says, I was astonished and I didn't understand. And the Lord says, that's okay, Daniel, just write it and seal it up. Uh, it'll be revealed later. And it says, and then Daniel went about the king's business. I love that about Daniel. He didn't get it all. He didn't figure it all out but he was still a faithful servant, not knowing what he was even talking about half the time because it was prophecy for later. In the same way, you may not get all of Matthew 24 and say, Brett, I'm a little confused. In fact, tonight you really confused me. Thanks a lot. But the end result should still be the same. We should be busy about the kingdom, serving Jesus, loving Jesus, dump the sinful lifestyle stuff and be the blessed people who hunger and thirst after righteousness because they're the ones who are gonna be filled. And when we're faithfully serving the Lord, when he finds us, when he comes to rapture the church, um, when he finds us faithfully serving, then the Lord says, I'm gonna reward you for that. Um, and you're not like the wicked servant who says, my Lord delays his coming. So that's the goal, to be watching, waiting, sober, vigilant, like all the other passages that tell us this is the same thing. So may the Lord give us ears to hear what the Spirit says in Jesus' name, amen. Lord, as we finish up this chapter and go into chapter 25, the second part of this um, discourse, um, we pray that you would burn that within our hearts, Lord, just that desire to serve you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
to not be too focused on the here and now and, and sucked into that worldly view of, of uh, thinking that you're gonna delay your coming, but rather would, would you find this church, this group of people, uh, vigilant and sober, watching and ready. Lord, um, we thank you for these passages and what, what, what powerful message really it is to know that someday you really will come and take your church, rapture us out. You're gonna make all the wrongs right and you're gonna come again in the second coming. Lord, these things seem almost surreal to even think about, but we do know you're clear that these things will come to pass. And it seems, Lord, to us sooner than later. But until that day, would you find us faithful? Um, bless these, your people. May this study tonight bring forth good fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.